love these spring mornings. Sun's streaming down, but it's still a little chilly. There's birdsong everywhere, and the quality of light's incredible. Even when it just dumps rain like it did Wednesday, there's a beauty in that, a splendor to it. A testament to the power of nature and our relative powerlessness as animals within a massive planetary system. Mornings like this have helped me realize that, despite it all, it's been nice to wake up, make coffee, and either get outside into the sun or just sort of stand in an open doorway watching the rain come down. You know, we think of ourselves as lords of the land, and we certainly act like gods of it. But it's times like this you remember we're all just soft, hairless vertebrates who scamper for cover when it rains like any other creature. Our routines are still shot, but look at nature. Nature doesn't have a routine. Nature's all over the place, especially this time of year. It's all part of a cycle too complex to ever really understand, and so most things in the world just poke their heads out of their burrow, look around, and figure out how to meet the day. It's nice to feel like I'm part of that for once. Of course, as I stand here, the news is on, because the news is always on. It flips on right alongside the kettle every morning. It's Korva Coleman or Lakshmi Singh, and then John Shea with the BBC World Service. Then later, half a cup gone and wanting to dig in a little deeper on the topic, I usually turn to my man Mikey Barbs. <laughs> That's my nickname for Michael Barbro of the New York Times Daily. Because you see, in addition to being a creature of this earth, I'm a citizen of this great country. And a citizen needs to stay informed. And of course, the news is almost never good, especially not now. It's really mostly bad, but despite it all, I can take some comfort in knowing that with all this uncertainty, the smartest people in the world are trying to keep us all safe, and other smart people are helping keep us informed. What's that, Corva? The Trump administration has been sitting on a report about projected COVID deaths in June? Well, I wonder what it says. Oh, deaths are going to go up to 3,000 per day. I think it's uh, 1,800 right now. I, I thought with all this talk of getting back to normal, deaths would be going down, but oh. Oh, I see. I guess that just shows how big the problem is and, and how much bigger the problem is in America than other places. Corva didn't say it, but I, I guess it's just on account of how free we are and, and how much freer we are than everybody else in this godforsaken world. Well, that certainly clarifies things. Uh, I guess I better stop leaning against the stoop and make something of my day. The sun will always be here tomorrow. I mean, at least I'm relatively certain it will. Uh, lots changed in the last seven weeks, but I mean, still pretty sure the, the sun's going to rise. Damn it, now I'm descending into idle thoughts, and you know what they say about idle thoughts. It leads to moral turpitude. Yes, sir, time to stop being a creature of this earth and get back to being a citizen of the old U.S. of A. June's only three weeks away and those 3,000 bodies ain't gonna infect themselves. God, this inner monologue just keeps going. Only one way to stop it, with action. Honey, fetch my mask. I got an economy to restart. Actually, forget the mask. I'm gonna ride this fucker bareback. Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 3. I'm starting to think about having to eat my neighbors. If I backed myself into a corner where I have to do a weird opening segment every range, (laughs) 
I sure hope not. I also hope I can stop doing this voice. It's kind of addicting. I like it a lot. I would like to uh, thank those of you who've taken the time to tell me these spoofs and goofs are funny to you. <laughs> I've gotten uh, surprisingly good feedback on like the quality of the sound and the editing and stuff. And I just want everybody to know right now that this is as good as it gets. If we can all just keep our expectations right here, we'll all be very happy. Next, because I'm very much in a self-care and self-love place right now, I do want to give myself a little bit of credit for waiting two full episodes before making an Alex Jones reference. So those who know me, especially my wife and my uh, good friend Inga, know that that comes a lot. <laughs> they usually come a lot faster than that. Let's just say that. Okay last little bit of housekeeping. Before we get into this dumb week, I just want to apologize for the tardiness of this episode. I had an entirely different plan for episode three, and uh, let's just say it didn't work out. So we lost a week in this journey, but you know, that's kind of how it goes. It's kind of like we're playing Oregon Trail. Let's call it uh, Washington Range. And uh, we got hung up in Fort Laramie for a few days waiting for Sally's snake bite to heal. Well, unfortunately, Sally died. Sally was episode three, but she died. And uh, I've been in mourning, but that's kind of the way Washington Range works. You start the journey with a bunch of kids and some of them die along the way. And, you know, if you have a naming schema for those kids, you just forget that one of them existed, rename the other one episode three, and you just keep plugging along. It's a cold and brutal place out there, so you can't really afford to develop too many feelings. It's like a rookie mistake that you make when you're first starting Washington Range. You get really attached to your episode names and whatnot, but no, you just got to stack them up like cordwood and keep going. Some of them are going to die. And you know, the silver lining, Lemons Out of Lemonade, the delay allowed us to slide into the news cycle after a truly breathtaking revelation. I know that's not going to be close to specific enough, but uh, in this case, it was the New York Times article that ran saying that the Trump administration was sitting on a projection that says in June, so like three weeks from now, the deaths from COVID will be up to 3,000 per week. I don't know about you, but 3,000 deaths is sort of seared into my mind as the number of people that died during September 11th. So let's think about what that means for a second. We've reached the curve in a lot of places. In some places, infections are going down. I think Spokane's actually looking pretty good right now. But in aggregate, countrywide, we aren't. Our deaths are still going up. Infections are still going up. We aren't even close to over the peak. We're, in fact, going to go up to a 9-11 worth of deaths every day beginning in June. And we're at a point where, you know, late the week before this report came out, there were all these reopened protests, which seem grassroots, but we know are tied to the DeVos family in Michigan and things like that. These, this is an astroturfed movement. It doesn't mean that there aren't real people who are protesting and who are worried about their livelihoods, but the movement itself has been funded by groups connected to capital and groups connected to the administration. Meanwhile, the administration has this report in hand saying that 3,000 people are going to start dying in June. Okay. But then because I'm a nerd, I went and actually look at the report. The New York Times made it available for people to read if they wanted to. And it basically looks like a PowerPoint in Department of Homeland Security letterhead, effectively. Uh, I'll link to it in the episode description. Um, there are two graphs that are really fascinating. The first is the projected cases per day. So like the data of where the, the number of infections have been, and then a projection of where they're going to get to over a course of basically the, it, the data goes all the way out to, well, just to the first of June. Oh, and then down in the right hand corner, there's a run date for these projections of uh, May 1st. So these numbers were projected at the beginning of May, and then they leaked pretty much immediately because obviously somebody in the administration is like, wow, that's a lot more dead. <laughs> 
than the national discourse has suggested. But anyways, the graphs are really interesting. Let me try to paint a picture here. Like I told you, I think in episode one that I was a failed math major and statistics and probability was about the time my eyes finally glazed over permanently on the subject of math, but I, I do still know how to read a graph. And when you're, so when you're talking data, like concrete numbers collected in the past, and then trying to project that out into the future, people create what are called models of probability. So you take actual data, you make a model, and that model creates a line going off into the future in whatever direction you think the trend is headed. And because there's always some unknown variables, there's the line, and then there's like a colored band on either side of the line. So it's like, oh, we think we're going to hit X number of deaths, but it could be more than that. It could be less than that based on a certain, you know, accepted range of probability. So in the case of these graphs, basically what that means is we think this is the number, roughly 3,000, but we're super sure that it's going to be somewhere between 8,000 dead and, oh, like, looks like 800 dead. So that's not super helpful for, like, lay people, but that's kind of how probability works. It's like you do your best, you make your best guess, and then you say, oh, but it could be as high as this or it could be as low as this, right? You know, when you see the path of hurricanes on the news and the the path gets wider and wider and wider as it goes out. It's not because the storm's getting bigger. That's because they're like, at this point in time, we think it's going to go in a certain direction, but it might go X number of miles to the West or X number of miles to the East, right? It's the same idea. Given your best guess, you have a path and then you have a certain degree of variance from the path, either higher or lower than the path you think is right, right? And then because the intent is to actually make these models better, you're always feeding new information into the model and you're probably tweaking the models. I don't know, but like, I don't know exactly what the standard is, but it's, you're always trying to make the models a more accurate reflection of reality so that then you can more accurately predict the future, right? So the infections graph and the deaths graph both start in, looks like March 15th, which means we have a month and a half of data to show how good these models have been doing at predicting the future. That's where the graphs start getting really, really fascinating. The graph of infected cases, expected infections, the real graph follows the projection relatively closely. It's pretty good. It's like a little, actual cases are a little on the high side to start with. And now they're maybe, a, then they kind of even out around April 15th. And then they're a little bit on the low side lately, but they're, it's really, it's really close to the graph. So it's, the model is doing a good job of projecting the number of infections. Deaths though, is a different story. Well, what does the deaths graph look like? Oh, good question. Thanks for asking. The deaths, the actual deaths have been since the very beginning a lot higher than the projected deaths. The graph follows like the general curve of the projection, but it's always a lot higher, like significantly higher. So for example, the model would have projected roughly, it looks like under 250 deaths on April 1st, but we actually hit over a thousand, right? So that's a lot higher. It looks like it's getting a little bit closer um, as we go, but it's still you know, let's, let's look at say the end of April, the trend line was looking like it should have been below 500 and we're at like 1800. So that model is not doing a great job of predicting deaths, or at least it means we're on the high end of the probability curve, right? Back to that little band, the little, the little hurricane band that I was talking about. Now we're kind of like 
at the top end of this probability band. And the top end of the probability band is actually, it's a, it's pretty thick. It's a kind of a chunky boy and it doesn't top out anywhere near 3000 deaths per day. It actually tops out closer to 8,000 deaths per day. That's a lot higher than 3000. So what am I saying here? I'm, I'm not in any way trying to be alarmist. I'm not trying to even get close to predicting that there is going to be 8,000 deaths a day in June, but deaths have been outperforming the curve. The curve says 3,000 per day. And so the curve is starting to feel to me at least, and again, I'm not an expert, but I know how to read a graph, like maybe it's a low estimate. So I'm not trying to tell you to like lock yourself in a bunker or anything. I'm not making any prescriptions about how you should behave with this knowledge or with this information at all. Although it might be a good idea to continue sheltering in place the way, you know, experts have been telling us all along to. But the point, I guess, is this information was with the administration as they were moving and funding groups to reopen the economy. It seems like the last thing we should be doing right now is opening up the economy as quickly as possible, the way a lot of people are saying. But again, Ivory Tower, I don't know if I'm in the majority in that feeling or if I'm in the minority. I don't know where things are going. So for today's episode, I thought I would maybe just try to dive into a little bit of how people actually feel. And we'll be doing some polling data stuff and then using that as a lens to then look at the argumentation on the pro reopen side. So trying to track and unpack the back and forth between the stay at home crowd and the reopen everything crowd. And that's why I wanted to start with the Trump administration knowing about the 9-11 worth of deaths per day, because the reopen movement starts very close to the top of the administration. And if the reopen movement wasn't specifically Trump's idea, the bandwagon was created by people who are very, very close to him. And he has jumped on that bandwagon whole hog. So on April 17th, BuzzFeed and a few other outlets ran an article about how the group organizing protests for to reopen Michigan state specifically was linked to Betsy DeVos and the DeVos family, which is a huge conservative donor in a bunch of Midwestern states, but specifically Michigan. And actually the reason Betsy DeVos has her job as the secretary of education in the Trump administration is largely due to the influence of the DeVos family as a whole exerts on, on national politics. Some writers for the New York Times noticed in the course of their reporting that a lot of the pages that were advertising, that were either getting these groups together, these reopen groups together, and then planning these specific rallies that have happened over the last few weeks would use, let's say, language that is so similar to each other, and in some cases, word for word verbatim, that you would get, you know, failed in your college composition class for plagiarism if reopen Washington and reopen Michigan came to class with the same Facebook page, right? And through that and through some other reporting and other data gathering, they were able to uh, also like BuzzFeed track a lot of these expenditures back to huge conservative funding groups. That doesn't mean, again, that people who are feeling a massive enough economic anxiety to go protest on the steps of the Spokane County Courthouse as happened happened about 10 days ago, do not have real economic fears. But it does mean that those economic fears are being funded and then they're, the outlet of those fears are being shaped by some of the largest donors in America. So when there's a spontaneous response 
to something. It's called a, a grassroots movement. People just coming together to, to solve a problem that they see in their community. When it's funded from the top, it's generally called AstroTurf. This is the definition of an AstroTurf movement. Again, real fears in many cases from people who are just at the economic margins, but the organization, the structure, and the sort of directing force, very, very AstroTurf. And so we get all these protests all over the place. And in Spokane specifically, what I noticed as I was watching every TV station and the Spokesman Review newspaper and maybe the Inlander, I can't, don't, don't quote me on the Inlander, but at least four of our major outlets carried the courthouse protests wall to wall on Facebook Live or whatever platform they were using unedited in their entirety. What did we see? We saw people like Joey Gibson, who's the leader of the Patriot Prayer Movement, who lives in Vancouver, Washington, and is used to doing the majority of his uh, agitating on the West Side, was actually in Spokane on this day when there were a bunch of coordinated protests. So he chose to leave the West Side, come to Spokane to be a part of the Spokane protest. His group hasn't been specifically labeled a hate group, but he is connected to the Proud Boys, who very much are a hate group. The Gavin McGinnis alt-right group that was responsible for things like the Charlottesville protests and whatnot. Also, there was Matt Shea, the Spokane Valley disgraced state legislator whose views are so extreme that the Republican caucus of the state legislator actually kicked him out. So he's no longer able to like sit in the room with the other Republicans when they're sort of planning whatever they're planning uh, in their legislative session. And it wasn't just Matt Shea, Leah Satilli, who's an awesome uh, former Inlander writer, rad journalist who has an amazing podcast called Bundyville that you should definitely listen to uh, the moment you get a chance. It does a lot of focusing on, on the religious groups that surround both the Bundy protests, the Malheur reservation stuff, but then connects it up to Matt Shea and this religious community in Stevens County called the Marble Country. Without going into too much detail, I feel like uh, if Leah would be nice enough to come on, I should just interview the hell out of Leah with for all of the reporting she's done over the last three or four years on these groups. But basically, it's a Christian identity movement <laughs> that uh, is... Christian identity is basically a nice way of saying white supremacist movement that wants to create a, a white nation for white people. Uh, and in the specific case of what's happening in Eastern Washington, uh, Matt Shea and Marble Country folks are trying to, they're one of the moving forces behind the, the state of liberty that you might've heard about wanting to sort of split the east side of Washington from the west side of Washington and create a new state over here called Liberty. Shea specifically wrote or at least had a hand in writing a document called the biblical basis of war, which was, you know, holy God, kind of like an OJ Simpson, if I did it sort of thing. Like a, if there were a holy war in America against the blacks and the browns well, and the Muslims, this is how I would do it. And so alongside Joey Gibson and Matt Shea, there were a bunch of business leaders, quote unquote, that I didn't really, well, I didn't recognize them. They didn't really stand out, except it was very telling that it was business leaders, quote unquote, and not 
rank and file workers who are featured at these protests. So like I said, let's put a pin in the Joey Gibson, Matt Shea, Marble Country, Christian identity, white supremacy part of this thing. And let's sort of argue from a position of the absolute best faith possible. I'm going to give these people the most benefit of the doubt I possibly can. But just put a pin in that, like put that in the back of your mind that even if the frontline organizers of this protest just really want to see the economy back open, they just really want to see America return to strength and prosperity, they let people up on stage who are white supremacists, who are Christian identity people, who are at best preaching an ideology that I think the majority of people would consider fringe. Let's just use that word. Let's say fringe. After a cocktail or two, I might call it hateful bile that has no place in a modern society. But for now, let's just say fringe. Okay, so Matt Shea was the leader of the protest in Spokane. But let's again, let's argue from the absolute best faith and say that the DeVos family or whatever, whoever's doing the astroturfed national movement is not directly and trying to, you know, advocate for a white ethno state in Eastern Washington. Let's say that for the sake of argument, this really is about reopening America and returning it to its prosperity as quickly as possible. What does that mean? And because, you know, America is ostensibly a democracy, how many people, how many of our friends and neighbors are like, yeah, no, we actually do need to get back to work as quickly as possible, right? So I've been sitting here for a couple of weeks giving my opinions about this. Clearly, there have been demonstrations uh, against it. There have certainly been editorials written like in our newspaper. But like, what do, how is it feeling in America? Because I'm going to be honest, the protest at the courthouse seemed pretty big. It was a couple hundred people. The spokesman reported it was a couple hundred people. These protests are happening in Chicago. They're happening all over the Midwest. They're happening in Philadelphia. There are uh, a couple different places in Pennsylvania. There are, have been a lot of protests and not, you know, just in the deep South, not in deep red states. It's been, it's been pretty much all over the place. And so shows of force like this can kind of, well, I don't know, they can either illustrate or exaggerate the size of your movement, especially when they're as well coordinated as they have been. So I wanted to get to the bottom of that. Was I the one who was out of step with the majority of people or is this group out of step or is it like a battle of ideology? Is it 50-50? What's the deal, right? And I mean, for anybody who expresses like absolute certitude that they know what's on the minds of the average American person, I really hope that you were like in a coma during the 2016 election, because I think that is an object lesson in the fact that we cannot take anything for granted. And there are a lot of formal and informal networks. There's a lot of soft power and weird shit happens all the time. Again, let's not forget that Republicans just passed a one-time UBI with very little fight. The poles of political discourse are potentially shifting. People are suddenly worried, and I think rightfully so, about a Herrenvolk democracy, a white supremacist social democracy popping up in America. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Because I'd been seeing sentiments online, specifically, you know, that like Jay Inslee was going to be run out of state on a rail. He was going to either get creamed in the election or get deported to, I don't know, 
Russia or China or both or all three, (laughs) people seemed convinced that there was going to be like a popular uprising against this governmental overreach. And then I don't know, like Inslee was either going to get gulagged to Putin's Russia at the behest of Trump, or he was going to flee to Beijing because he's a Manchurian candidate. (laughs) We know the internet's a wacky place. So there was that. But I'd also gotten a sense from my feeds that the people clamoring to open back up were a very, very vocal minority Uh, and largely business owners or people who are self-employed. And again, I feel for those people, I'm self-employed myself. It is not easy. There's a ton of uncertainty, but again, very importantly, at least in my mind, and you know, we all get to decide the ethics of this, but in my mind, it's workers. It's the frontline people who are going to be at the checkout counters, going to be at like Stacy Coles in his editorial suggested, the people who are going to be checking your temperature as you walk into Nordstrom. Those are the people that I'm like most concerned about in this because they're also the people that have the least freedom to do anything about it. I think it's in Iowa, maybe that the governor is threatening to force people back to work. Like the moment your job opens up, if you don't go back to your job, you cannot continue on unemployment. So that's scary for people, right? And I think we should do our due diligence to make sure that the people that are most tenuous, who are and who are going to be back on the front lines, like we're talking about meat packers. We've been having this conversation about meat packers for weeks now. We're going to run out of meat potentially because all the meat packing plants are festering pools of COVID and a, a lot of them have been shut down. And now they're talking about forcing them back open. There are going to be frontline workers who are affected by that much more than you or I if we can't get a steak. So how do those people feel? And, you know, I give myself credit for having a pretty wide variety of friends, but these are all anecdotes and anecdotes aren't data. I wanted to be prepared to be like, oh, actually, they do want to open up. They want to open up, too, because they are worried. And then it's like, okay, well, Luke, you're in the minority here. For whatever reason, I hadn't seen a bunch of polling data spoiler alert, turns out I had just missed it. There's been a ton of polling, but I hadn't seen that yet. So I had seen several conservative groups like Better Spokane and the Spokane mayor's office circulating basically polls, but masquerading as questionnaires. But they were just online surveys that you could take at random. So they weren't scientific. I mean, I had suspicions about those unscientific polls because none of the results had come out, which made me think that maybe these conservative groups didn't get the answers they were hoping for. But if the plural of anecdote isn't data, the absence of data definitely isn't data, right? And so I just hadn't seen the data. I had to go find it. Seemed like the uh, coronavirus polling was just about as spotty as the coronavirus testing. Am I right, folks? But then I just found it. On Friday morning, I like woke up, rolled over, and it was in my feed, a New York Times article with national numbers. And the headline just like smacked me in the face. The government is ready to reopen its citizens aren't, comma, polls show. It's like one of those classically terrible newspaper headlines. But inside, the the data was pretty definitive. Over two-thirds of Americans, 68%, say they're more concerned that state governments would reopen too quickly than staying closed too long. And that's according to one Pew poll. There's an AP and NORC poll. AP stands for Associated Press. I don't know what NORC stands for. The same number of people, 68%, a different 68%, but still 68%, 
said they had a great deal of trust in the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and only 23% said they had a high degree of trust in Trump and the administration. Okay, so that's like a super majority of people are like, okay, please don't open up too early, despite the protests, despite everything, despite the talking heads. Please, for the love of God, let's listen to the CDC and maybe don't open too fast. This obviously sent me looking for other polls too, because a snapshot in time is just that. It's just like one moment in time. What does it look like as a function? of time, right? Is 68% up from 50% or is it down from 100%? Are people getting more or less anxious to open up as we go? So I went over to sort of my go-to data journalism website, 538. I hadn't been there since the uh, the South Carolina primary. Um, briefly, Nate Silver started 538 He's a, a baseball nerd who became famous for predicting the presidential race in 49 out of 50 states in 08 and then predicting all 50 states in 2012. So I think he was treated with, you know, some justification as like the political oracle of the Obama era. Like you would just feed Nate Silver data and he would tell you the future. In the Trump era, eh, results are more mixed. You can say that he's the least bad. He gave Clinton only a 71% chance of beating Trump in 2016 when other places gave her an 85 to frickin' 99% chance. And in probability, if you've got a 99% chance, it's 100% chance. Because you can't actually say with 100% probability. So 99% is basically as good as it gets in probability. So, you know... I'm sure there's some consolation in being the least wrong, but during this year's primary, Sanders, Bernie Sanders had a, like a 75% chance of winning a plurality of delegates, and then the South Carolina primary happened, and all of a sudden, it was 85% to Biden. So all of a sudden, this prognostication doesn't seem particularly useful. I'm not saying Nate Silver's an idiot, but being the least wrong isn't the same as being right. So I just don't know what the point of predictions are right now in a, you know, it seems like America is so unstable, so volatile in the Trump era that polls are no longer predictive or at, at least we haven't cracked the code. So, I mean, I've stopped going there for predictions, but it's still probably the most comprehensive place that I found on the internet for aggregate polling data. And like I said, nothing's perfect, but aggregate polling data is better than a single point in time poll because it takes all of those point in time polls where you take a couple, two or three days, interview a thousand or 2000 people, and then turn that into a representative snapshot. The aggregate polling takes all of the polls, adds them up, and all of a sudden the sample size is a lot bigger. It has a temporal component to it. And the idea is you get a better sense, right? So aggregate polling data, way better than just a single poll. Very good. Or at least as good as we have in this weird, chaotic, fickle world of telling how people are feeling over time and at any given moment. And so, as you might expect, a bunch of data nerd journalists have an all-in-one coronavirus page with all of the tracking polls since February 16th. And like I said, there are a million of them. I just hadn't seen them for whatever reason. And they sort of do the top-level questions that get sort of asked every single time. How worried are you about coronavirus? How worried are you about the economy? How well is Trump's response going? And so obviously the first one I wanted to look at was how worried are you about coronavirus? So they've been gathering this data since, you know, early mid March. The peak of concern about coronavirus happened on April 13th. 75.2% of people were very or somewhat concerned. 
23.5% of people were not very or not at all concerned about coronavirus. And there's like two or 3% in there. People must have said, I don't know. I went back to that week specifically and didn't see any big headlines or big bombshells. It just seemed to be like a pretty natural crest of concern. A week later, roughly on April 21st, the number had gone down to 68% of people who are either somewhat or very concerned about coronavirus. And that's more or less stayed there at like a homeostasis for almost 20 days now, 21, 22 days. So since then, the numbers have gone up or down a little bit, but stayed mostly the same. So May 9th, a couple days ago, 69% of people were very or somewhat concerned and 30.5% of people were not at all or not very concerned. What does that mean then? It means I think that for three weeks now, we've had a relatively stable, relatively solid two to one majority of people who are concerned about the coronavirus. They're worried about the coronavirus. Three weeks is also the amount of time that this uh, reopen America movement, more or less, at least came into the public consciousness. It might have been open before that. So what does that say? It says to me that the beginnings of the movement weren't some sort of huge groundswell of people's concern shifting from virus to economy. This wasn't like a mass popular movement on the one hand, but it also says that after three weeks of this movement more or less going on day and night and making a ton of noise and every news station in every community where one of these protests comes up covers it wall to wall, it actually hasn't changed people's minds much either. So people are seeing the protests, they're seeing the wall-to-wall coverage in a lot of cases, at least in Spokane, uh, specifically Q6 News has been doing a bunch of follow-ups with concerned business owners who are like, my businesses are going to fail. And again, I feel very sympathetic to individual business people, but that's not moving the needle for folks. Rank and file Americans, normal people are like, yeah, no, I'm still worried about this virus though, guys. So this cuts against the protesters argument that a nation of 320 million people would be braving the virus, if not for a tyrannical nanny state of hand-wringing liberals. A super majority of people are still worried. And then just this morning, May 11th, in case you don't rush to listen to my every word the moment it's published, May 11th came an AP poll, another AP poll, saying that 71% of people are in favor of requiring people to stay in their homes except for essential errands, which is more strict than what's happening in even the bluest states. That's like Michigan levels of strict. We're back to being only in one poll territory, but that's the newest snapshot we have. So again, a super majority of people saying, yeah, let's all just stay home, shall we? And for the love of God, if you have to go out, make it for something meaningful. Please. The other thing it suggests is that if even if states do reopen early, let's say the Dakotas or whatever, or Idaho, people aren't just going to rush from their homes and flood the streets with bars and restaurants. So opening back up by governmental fiat is not necessarily going to solve the problem of these businesses. If people want to stay inside, they're going to stay inside. It's not like the reopen order is going to be a, you know, we demand you go get a bite to eat at Fuddruckers. And then, of course, I can practically hear in my ears someone yelling, prove it, Baumgarten, you lily-livered sheeple. People will get out. They will consume. Was that an adequate Alex Jones impression? It just came to me like that. But okay, yeah, I will actually prove it. So (laughs) another 538 article done a few weeks ago used GPS data from people's phones. So again, nanny state, but not nanny state, nanny corporations tracking our data. uh, And 538 used this data to 
look at when people began self-isolating. So they specifically took a dive at six red states, Tennessee, Georgia, Louisiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Kentucky to see when people started self-isolating. What they found, and this is absolutely fascinating, they found that people started gradually changing their habits along with concern about the pandemic. Now, obviously, concern hit different places at different times. It hit Washington first, Washington state, I mean, and it, you know, whatever it's, it sort of moved its way through the country at different rates. But as a function of when the governmental orders were announced, people were already self-isolating before their governors told them to. And not just a little bit. What the researchers found was that 90% of the total behavior change happened the week before the stay-at-home orders were passed in each state, meaning that the governmental orders were actually a lagging indicator of people's actual behavior. People changed their behavior, people chose to stay home, and then the orders were imposed. Even in the South, even in Tennessee, Georgia, Louisiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Kentucky. So that's mind-blowing, right? One of the big rallying cries for the anti-lockdown groups is that they're free-thinking people and everything else are sheep. Everybody else are sheeple, just going along with whatever the globalists and government want. The actual data agrees that people are free thinking. They are, in fact, so free thinking that they looked at the data, they heard the news reports, they heard from their friends, and they were scared enough by coronavirus that they had, to the extent that they were going to change their behavior, they had changed their behavior 90% to lockdown before the lockdown even happened. The free thinking people of America decided to be safe, decided to be cautious, to think not just of their own safety, but the safety of relatives and, the, and loved ones. And that's the historic trend. Even in red states. Okay, so if people have demonstrated that they aren't sheep, what makes the reopen protesters think we can be led to the slaughter? These people aren't talking candidly on the record about their strategy or anything, but I want to walk you through my hunch of what the reopen protesters are thinking. Let's go back to those 538 polling aggregates for a second. And the second question, there's the coronavirus concern stuff we already talked about. And a little further down the page is a graph showing anxiety about the economy. It's reading these two graphs against each other that I think we can understand where the anti-lockdown special interests are hoping to find fuel for their, you know, the the revolution to reopen or whatever. I just want to hit this briefly. As early as mid-February, a slight majority of people are expressing concern about the impact coronavirus will have on the economy. It's like barely, it's like 55% are either somewhat or very concerned that the coronavirus is going to really impact the economy. Because remember, (laughs) as recently as mid-February, the economy's crushing. It's really good. Uh, I had just gotten done talking with the guy who does my retirement and he was like, hey, congratulations, your uh, portfolio went up 20% last year. (laughs) And then two weeks later, it went down 25%. So we weren't there yet though. So people were only a little bit worried about the economic impact that it might have. Then the first deaths are confirmed and the very concerned line jumps almost equal with the somewhat concerned line to 33%. So now all of a sudden, you know, 65% of people are worried about coronavirus and its effect on the economy. Then Trump declares a national emergency on March 13th. And three days later, people get really concerned. So the very concerned line goes all the way up to 42.5% and the somewhat concerned line stays at about 35.5%. So now we have close to 80% of people are really worried about how this is going to affect the economy. 
nine days later, March 22nd, the day after the first reports that millions of people are filing for unemployment, the very concerned number alone crosses 50% and it has stayed there. So now a majority of Americans, 54 to 58% of people on average, are very worried about the economy. Put that together with the 29 to 32% who have always been somewhat concerned. It's like these people uh, you know, have anxiety disorders, but they're medicated for it. It's like, but taken together, that's like 85 to 90% of America moderately to totally freaked out about the economy. Do you see where I'm going with this? So 71% of America is like, yeah, this virus freaks me out and I think we should all stay home. 85 to 90% of people are like, yeah, the economic crisis caused by staying home due to the virus is also freaking me out, maybe on a more long-term basis. I think, I, I don't know what we should do. What should we do? Somebody should tell me what to do. And so because 71% and 90% respectively both represent super majorities of America, there has to be a ton of overlap in this group, but it's not complete overlap, right? So I'm imagining, this is, this is my theory. The reopen folks have to be doing two things as part of their persuasion campaign, both of which I'm going to say I think, but I'm pretty positive, use fear to get people to act against their best interests. And really, I think they're animal instincts. For the people who are scared of the economic toll, but not the virus, they're saying, hey, all these dumb sheep are getting led around by the Illuminati and Jay Inslee and Gretchen, whatever her name is in Michigan, and they're going to destroy our beautiful economy. We can't let them do that. Again, that's my Alex Jones voice, sorry. For the people scared of everything, the message is a little softer, but it's equally corrosive. They're saying, we know you're scared, sweetie. We know, but Jay Inslee and Gretchen, whatever her name is, they're lying to you. They're liars and they're globalists for some unknown reason, completely against their own interests, but they're lying to you. They want to grind our economy to the halt and... There's never really like an answer as far as I can tell, but for some reason, our governors who got elected and probably get reelected on the strengths of our you know, various state economies are all of a sudden in part of a plot to destroy our economy, whatever. Again, maybe they're Manchurian candidates, they're sleeper agents. But again, the argument is you're being lied to. And even though it seems scary, this virus is a big hoax. So I need you to be brave and fight the globalists by, you know, going back to your job as a ski-doo salesman or whatever. We got to restart this economy. In both cases, they're using fear not to override reason exactly. This isn't just like animal instincts, like I said, overriding human intellect. They're trying to use an abstract fear, the fear of economic collapse, to overwhelm a concrete fear, fear of you or a loved one getting a disease and dying. And obviously that's a really hard argument to make, so they have to pretend like one of those things is fake. But we know that it's not fake. There are, as of today, I believe 80,000 people in America dead, and within a couple weeks we'll be dying at a rate of 3,000 people per week per the Trump administration's own data, these deaths are going to just keep piling up and piling up. We know it's not fake. And that's why folks, even in red states, were like, yeah, better safe than sorry. I'm not going to wait for Governor Billy McGoodle boy to issue the stay at home order. I'm just going to stay home, protect myself, protect my kids, protect my you know, aging parents, whatever. I don't know. Maybe this is sort of a tempest in a teacup episode, but I've been concerned about this. It seems like everybody that I know is really worried that we're going to be opening up too soon or just, just really, really concerned about the public health 
and the economic implications of this. And these arguments for opening up as quickly as possible seem pretty unsafe. And I'd seen a lot of anxiety about that as well. So I just wanted to talk about it a little bit. Is there a, what is to be done here? Like, is there something we can take away from this? I don't really know. I think the good news is that the strategy seems to not be working very well. So maybe we just take comfort in that. But also, I mean, if I find my, <laughs> if I find myself in a verbal tussle with one of these folks engaged in a, you know, bit of repartee and they pull out the sheeple thing and they tell me I'm, I'm being lied to, I'm just going to hit him with both barrels. It is you, sir who are treating Americans like sheep will not I? It is you who are playing off our basest fears. It is you, you, who are consorting with Christian identitarians and other white supremacists. It is you who are seeking to control with fear. And I say good day to you, sir. Good day. You know, it's that classic, was that my Daniel Plainview voice? Did I just go, uh, <laughs> did I just go full, there will be blood there? <laughs> But I mean, it's that all we're really saying is this is a classic, I know you are, but what am I argument? It's just like you are just playground level argumentation. It's all you got to give them, I think, because it's all they deserve. Just be like, I'm not trying to control people through fear of a virus. They're staying home on their own, even in red states. You're the one trying to control people through economic anxiety. Yes, huh? Yes, huh? I'm not the bad boy. You are. Nuh-uh. I'm not being a bad boy. You're being the bad boy. You are. You know, and then you just hit him again and again with that until we have universal health care, a jobs guarantee and a Green New Deal. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I think it might be that easy. It's, maybe it's just that easy. Let's just try that for a while. My God, we've got breaking news and I'm not even doing a bit right now. I'm actually trying to go to bed. It's 11.53 p.m. on Monday May 11th. I'm just about done with this episode and I see a little bit of breaking news from about 5 p.m. this afternoon. I'd normally say screw it. We'll save it for a different episode, but it literally is exactly what we've been talking about this whole time. So it would be very dumb of me to not at least talk about it for a second. Here we go. This is from my former colleague, Doug Nadvornik. Uh, we worked together at the Inlander. He is now at Spokane Public Radio. Spokane County Health Board just a few minutes ago authorized health officer Bob Lutz to apply for a coronavirus variance. Spokane wants to join eight other counties in moving directly to phase two of the state's four-phase reopen process. So those eight other counties are extremely rural and extremely sparsely populated. That's the first thing you need to know. But at the same time, Dr. Lutz is kind of a Fauci character. He doesn't seem to be particularly swayed by the politics of the moment. Um, the mayor and the county commissioners have been putting a lot of pressure on him. And while I wouldn't say he's completely unflappable, I also wouldn't say that he has been easily flapped. So let's go over and see what he has to say. You know, Bob, if you're being held against your will, blink twice sort of a situation. So in the letter that he sent to the regional health board asking to request this variance from the state, he says, I'm going to skip the first little part because it's kind of throat clearing. The first confirmed cases of COVID-19 were reported in Spokane on March 14th. A public health state of emergency was declared on March 20th. Since then, 386 confirmed cases of Spokane County residents have been reported to include 69 individuals hospitalized and 29 deaths. Note, Spokane serves as the regional medical hub and hospitalized patients maybe from surrounding counties. So he's basically rounding the numbers 
of hospitalized and dead down. Given data reflecting past and present COVID-19 status in Spokane County, hospital capacity and plans for case and contact investigation as presented in the attached documentation, it is my recommendation consideration be given to provide Spokane County a variance to move to phase two of the governor's Safe Start Washington plan. Sincerely, Bob Lutz, MD, health officer. So, I mean, not exactly Shakespeare, but also pretty unequivocal. He is saying, and not under any apparent coercion, (laughs) that he thinks we can jump from phase one to phase two. So does this mean that Spokane County is just throwing the doors open? Not really. Phase one is some outdoor recreation like hunting, fishing, golf, boating, hiking. Phase two is outdoor recreation involving fewer than five people outside your household. So you can add beaches to that and camping gatherings in phase one are none and you can do like drive up church service phase two is gathering with no more than five people outside your household per week so like go ahead and do a picnic with another family probably the biggest jump is for businesses and employers phase one is essential businesses open existing construction that meets agreed upon criteria won't get into that landscaping auto rv boat orv sales retail but Pick up and curbside orders only, car washes and pet walkers. Phase two adds the remaining manufacturing, additional construction phases, in-home and domestic services like nannies and house cleaning, retail stores where you can go into store now, but with certain restrictions, uh, real estate, professional services and office-based businesses, which incidentally means that our co-working space can probably reopen, hair and nail salons and barbers, pet groomers, and restaurants as long as they're at less than 50% capacity and table size no larger than five. So again, they're trying to encourage social distancing even inside of restaurants. So the last place to look, and let's do this very briefly because again, I want to go to bed, is uh, toward the loyal opposition. So What do our progressive lawmakers have to say about this idea? Brian Beggs, the city council president, hasn't updated his Facebook page in like three weeks, which is a little weird. Marcus Riccelli, though, our state representative from the third district, which is basically most of Spokane, came out in favor of the variance as well, saying he had been advocating for it since early last week. Okay, so that seems like relatively bipartisan support for this thing. Luke, you curmudgeon, you naysayer, do you have any hot takes against it? Eh, I think the things to be on the lookout for is whether or not the state actually allows the variance to go through. So how hard is Inslee going to be pushing the rules that he has set up? And then if it does go through, I think it'll be really interesting to see how quickly people rush back to their lives to sort of fill in the space that's been opened up by these eased restrictions. So are people going to just rush back in and, you know, have every restaurant in Spokane at 50% capacity, or are they going to be more cautious? Only time will tell on that, but it'll be really fascinating. It doesn't seem like this was entered into frivolously. It doesn't seem like anybody's arm was twisted. Uh, So let's just see how it goes, I guess. Anyway, I think I'll leave it there for now. In addition to the original episode three getting snake bit on the Washington range, I don't know. I've been been feeling like a little like I need to create a unified field theory of existence every time out. And that's obviously impossible and dumb. And it's been honestly kind of stressful. 
and you know, I'm very much in a self-care place right now. I'm having a self-care moment. So I think my focus is going to try to be on doing tighter shows with narrower topics and I don't know, letting the unified field theory episodes just come naturally if they come at all. And you know what? If they don't come at all, that's fine. We don't have to save the world every week. You know, we just have to keep chipping away at the monstrous brutality of the world until eventually on a day, probably not of our choosing, the entire horrible edifice comes crashing down, exposing the new universally just world we all deserve. Bye. This is the material that traps the particulates. I will eat my neighbors.